ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Growth and innovation. Two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the certified ETF advisor designation by visiting CETF.org. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right. Joining me will be Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. We're going to cover two of the bigger stories in ETF so far this year, at least in my opinion. Uh, so the first one, I would say, is a little bit uh, perplexing. The second one makes absolutely perfect sense. Uh, so first, we're going to look at the lack of inflows into some tech-related ETFs, despite excellent performance. And really, that's been a broader theme across equity ETFs overall. The, the inflows just haven't been there. Now, that has changed some uh, recently, but certainly odd investor behavior overall uh, from my perspective. So we'll get into that. And then we're also going to discuss this rash of covered call ETF filings, which comes on the heels of the enormous success we've seen from the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF. Ticker JEPI, J-E-P-I, which in and of itself is still a huge story this year. But there were several copycat filings over the past two weeks, including from Goldman Sachs and Rec shares. So we'll dive into uh, that ETF category in pretty good detail. Look forward to uh, hearing Laura's thoughts on that. I'll then be joined by Michael Natell, head of Intermediary Distribution at Northern Trust Asset Management, who, of course, is behind the FlexShares lineup of ETFs. Uh, that currently has nearly $21 billion in assets, top 20 ETF issuer. But Northern Trust has over a $1 trillion in assets globally, which means they have a depth of investment expertise in-house. And so Michael and I are actually going to discuss the firm's current base case around uh, both equities and fixed income, and certainly as Part of that will fold in a few FlexShares ETFs, but really looking forward to hearing how they view the markets right now. I just feel like there's so much going on and a lot of mixed signals out there, so very interested to hear how they view the world right now. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Sal Gilberti, 
founder and CEO of Tucrium, who's a leader in the commodity ETF space, specifically futures-based commodity ETFs. And their last two launches, including one in April, actually leverage artificial intelligence. These are both long-short strategies. One covers base metals, the other agriculture. And obviously, AI is a uh, very hot topic right now. So we'll look at those two products and perhaps touch on a few of their other ETFs as well, which they do have a uh, futures-based Bitcoin ETF under their uh, umbrella. I'm just saying that might come up. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, thanks for joining me. How have you been? I've been good. How are you, Nate? I'm doing fantastic. How is it already mid-June? <laughs> How is it already 108 in New Orleans? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that sounds uh, just absolutely brutal. It's a beautiful day here in uh, in Kansas City. But I think we're heading more in your direction uh, as we head towards the latter part of June. Um, okay, so look, I want to spend the bulk of our time on options-based ETFs, uh, the, the, these covered call ETFs like JEPI and uh, these potential clones or copycats. But just because I'm a, a little perplexed right now, I want to spend at least a few minutes asking you about tech-related ETFs. And the way that I thought I'd set this up is that if you look at some of the biggest and broadest tech ETFs out there, so say something like XLK, the uh, Technology Select Sector Spider ETF, or uh, VGT, the Vanguard Information Technology ETF, those ETFs are up 35, 36% year to date, but XLK has about 2.6 billion in outflows this year and VGT 600 million in outflows. And honestly, I, I was looking again this morning, I could keep going with some other tech related ETFs. Like if you want to get more granular and look at, say, uh, ARKK, the ARK Innovation ETF, that thing is up 39%. And has over 200 million in outflows. And again, there are just a number of examples like this. And so to start, I'm just curious what you think has been going on here. And I'll, I'll caveat that by saying I know tech ETFs overall have taken in flows if you just look at you know all the different sectors. But I'm curious why you think there's been no love for some of the most prominent tech ETFs out there. So I think there's a, a couple of things happening here. So so first off, um, you cite the, the very, very strong performance this year, and that's true. But we shouldn't forget that there was a fairly big pullback in tech last year, starting in Q1 and pretty much going throughout the entire year. So a lot of this performance that we're seeing in 2023 uh, in XLK and VGT and other ones, it's kind of just a rebound back to where those tech ETFs were at this time last January. We actually haven't even fully returned to that level, but we're kind of almost there. Um, so, but setting that aside and looking at just the the pure flows uh, data right now, I think there's a few things going on. So one, there are a few tech ETFs that are getting inflows, right? And it's, it's funds like QQQM which is the cheaper version of the Qs. 
So basically, if you want NASDAQ 100 exposure, uh, but at a cheaper price point, QQQQM is the one you want to look for. So, you know, maybe there's some folks doing some tax loss harvesting on maybe losses in uh, the queues and they want to move to a, a cheaper tech exposure at the same time. And so QQQM is going to benefit from that. Um, and and it, it matches this trend we've seen in QQQM for, for months now, how it's just steadily gained 100 million here, 200 million there, and so on and so on, steadily gained assets over time. But here's the interesting thing. We actually saw engagement rise around other Q's linked products, other like NASDAQ 100 exposures like QQQJ or TQQQ or, uh, you know, there was a big jump in these exposures last month. So, you know, that signals to me that people are kind of looking for their classic NASDAQ 100 exposure just in maybe different ways or more ways that are more suitable for their needs, right? And then you look at what other ETFs are are actually taking in money, and it's things like uh, Invesco's RYT. That's the equal weighted tech sector ETF. That's brought in almost half a billion dollars so far this year. And that's a way to get tech exposure, but without all that over-concentration in the big mega caps. So you know, most tech ETFs out there, very top heavy in Apple and Facebook and Amazon, so on. This one spreads out that exposure. So I'm wondering if that combined with this surge in interest we're seeing around small caps lately uh, among advisors, I'm wondering if this might be speaking to folks' concerns about maybe over-concentration in the tech names and uh, that tend to dominate the, the big tech indexes, right? Um, and then finally, just real quick, you you have niche uh, theme tech ETFs. So uh, it's it's weird to call a semiconductors ETF a, a niche uh, theme, but it's it's more targeted exposure. Let's let's go with that phrasing. It's a targeted exposure, uh, but Vanex SMH semiconductors ETF getting hundreds of millions of dollars lately. Um, and it's it's more of a, a classic uh, industry exposure, or like that, that narrow theme. And that, I mean, has to be tied into artificial intelligence, this sort of explosion of interest we've seen around anything AI, uh, whether it's um, you know, semis or uh, how AI is going to disrupt this industry or that industry. Um, I, I think people are very much looking for exposures uh, to that trend. I, I think some really good points there, and maybe interest is starting to bubble to the surface. Just a couple of uh, maybe counters to what you pointed out there. First of all, uh, QQQM, the, the Invesco NASDAQ 100 ETF, I call the mini Qs, and, and you're right, that is cheaper than QQQ. I, I saw that this morning. That has nearly $4.5 in inflows. My, my counter there would be, if you look at the NASDAQ 100, it is, it is up 36% this year. QQQ has over $650 million in outflows. But what actually stood out more to me is if you look at the uh, ProShares Ultra Pro QQQ, so the ticker on that is TQQQ, which, again, I know people aren't or they shouldn't be owning this as some sort of long-term holding. This is a three-times leverage NASDAQ 100 ETF. But I just have to point out that that's up about 124%. And has nearly four billion in outflow. So you know, offsetting yeah, that that's not too surprising. What why do you why do you think that's not surprising? Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting thing in leveraged and inverse ETF specifically that uh you seem 
sometimes you see them move opposite of the way that you think that the market would say that they should move um, simply because people are trying to set up for tomorrow's trade, right? So I think that might be what what's happening in in this. Um, people are trying to set up for what they think is going to happen in the queues uh, very, very shortly. But, I, I, you know, and also uh, in, in markets that are extremely volatile uh, or choppy or, or have had a lot of just action in them, uh, leverage and inverse activity tends to pick up. And we've certainly seen that in 2023 as well. Yeah, I mean, another example that I would point out here is ticker FNGU. So that's the microsectors mm-hmm. FANG plus index, three times leverage ETN. Say that uh, three times quickly. That thing is up 315% and only $50 million in inflows. Now, it's a $2 billion ETF, so we can you know debate whether $50 million in inflows is good or bad. I, I think just overall, I, I don't like to read too much into flows. I, I do think flows can be good sort of short-term sentiment indicators. It's just been such an odd year to me. Now, I was also the person at the beginning of the year, you, you know, making this prediction that we were going to see a trillion dollars in ETF inflows overall. Clearly, I'm going to be wrong on that unless we just have a, <laughs> a monster last uh, six months of the year. And, and again, flows have picked up noticeably uh, over the past month or so. And, and so maybe the tide may be turning. I, I just think the uh, the flows in the ETFs overall are, are just so odd. And I, I think tech ETFs are a, uh, you know, sort of a perfect example of that. Can't disagree. I mean, that, that, that you nailed it right there. I, it has been a strange year for flows for sure. All right, let's move on to these covered call ETFs, because I do think one of the biggest stories so far this year has been uh, these JEPI copycat filings. So, of course, JEPI, as I mentioned at the top, that's the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF, which I don't know if you saw this. I tweeted this out. This is unbelievable. This ETF has gone from literally zero in assets to over $26 billion in just over three years. That's just remarkable. It's now the largest actively managed ETF. However, as with any uh, ETF success story, it's going to attract copycats, right? And we've now seen filings from Goldman Sachs and and Rex shares, which, by the way, I I, want to mention, if anyone doubts that these are copycat filings, the ticker for one of the the Goldman ETFs is... I'm going to call it Gepi, G-E-P-I. So, so let me point that. And then the ticker for one of the uh, Rex shares ETFs is, I'm not kidding, Fepi, like F-E-P-I. So yeah, they're clearly trying to ride Jeppy's success. Um, I, I, I guess first, and we'll get into the filings, but can you just put some context around Jeppy's success? I'm just curious how you view this, given all the other ETF success stories you've covered over the years. So, you know, if investing were sports... I think there would be movies about Jeppy with titles like Miracle on Icy, right? This is just kind of an incredible story, an incredible growth story. Like you said, this one went from basically nothing in January 2021, uh, and it has gained 26, 27 billion in in assets. Just astonishing. Um, So if we kind of take a little step back and look at what was going on in 2021, uh, rates, if you remember at the time, were basically zero. COVID had a you know grip on the market. We were all still in lockdown and waiting for a vaccine. The market was kind of holding its breath. And then starting in late January, early February, kind of in that that period, it was like all 
hell broke loose, right? Um, January 6th happened. Inflation started to rise in January. The Fed starts to raise rates as the year goes on. The market gets more and more jostled. And it gets harder uh, for what was providing you income to continue providing you income, right? Um, So investors start to look for something that, that works, and it sure as heck isn't bonds in you know early 2021 and 22. Um, they don't have to look too far until they find uh, that income in the equity market and equity income ETFs and dividend ETFs. Um, Jeppy, you know, was the standout star out of that field. Uh, the yield was double digits, and investors are not stupid. <laughs> they noticed that, and they glommed on, and they haven't looked back. What's amazing, you mentioned earlier sort of the negative carryover in tech ETFs, right? We had this poor performance last year. And so maybe, you know, we're not seeing that we're not seeing the flows pick up this year because of that negative performance last year, even though there is positive performance in tech ETFs. If you look at Jeppy, it's actually underperforming this year. So it's only up about 3% versus 14% on the S&P 500. But listen to this. It's taken in over $9 billion. Which is just, uh, again, it's, it's unbelievable. But I think you're right. I mean, I've, I've said this before. I think a lot of these income strategies, investors clearly did not want to stand in front of the rising rate freight train last year in fixed income. And so they looked for alternative strategies, and Jeppy was right there. Now, there, there have been... You know, other cover calls on the market or cover call ETFs on the market for a while. But, you know, for whatever reason, it just seems like Jeppy caught lightning in a bottle. I think it had a lot to do with just, uh, you know, the, the, the headline number, right? The, the headline yield was heads and tails above what other ETFs on the market were offering. There were some other cover call strategies out there that were offering very attractive yields. But at one point, Jeppy last year, it was offering a yield of 14%. That was. That's frankly insane <laughs> compared to like what at the uh, what you could get in bonds at that time or uh, you know in the fixed income market. Now it has since come down to earth a little bit. We're looking at a thirty day SEC yield of eight point four eight percent last I checked, but that's still pretty attractive and it's still pulling a lot of people in when other income options on the market are, you know, still in comparison, a little lack, lackluster. So, you know, you mentioned that people were continuing to put money into Jeppy, even though performance is like, eh, not so great this year. And, and maybe the yield has come down. And that's just the strength of, uh, maybe it's it's just this, a factor, a testament to how well it did over the past uh, two years. And people are, are uh, expecting that it's going to turn around soon and, and they're going to be able to ride the Jeppy train to uh, to the moon or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, it certainly hasn't seen any slowdown in flows and it hasn't seen a lot of money come out either. So that's, that's a, a real phenomenon. No, I completely agree. That's what I was trying to say. You said it much more eloquently than I did. There's been this positive carryover because of the way it performed last year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, clearly it looks like, uh, you know, the, I don't know if I, it's my favorite term, but assets are sticky here in this uh, ETF. Uh, Laura, I should have asked you this up front uh, just because I always like to try and cover the basics. But do, do you want to explain these covered call strategies just at a very high level? I know there are, you know, big differences among the various covered call ETFs. But in general, what is the uh, value prop here? Oh, sure. So, so there are many, like you said, many different flavors of covered call ETFs. 
Uh, but basically what a fund like Jeppy is doing is that it's holding the underlying securities of an index uh, or, or basket of stocks or, or whatever. In the case of Jeppy, it, it tries to go for, for S&P 500 stocks, um, uh, you know, S&P 500 exposure. And it sells call options with exposure to the stocks in that index. Now, Jeppy is doing this through equity-linked notes or ELNs, but there are many different ways to do this. You can trade options on the index. You can trade options on the ETF. You can trade options on you know, all, all sorts of different things. Um, there's also with Jeppy an active management uh, element to it too. There's some discretion in which stocks they're picking and so on. I'm gonna set that aside for now. Um, but, but the question is why go through this, right? Why sell call options at all? So a call option is an instrument that gives anybody who holds it the ability to buy a certain security at a certain price at a certain future date, right? It, but, but it's not a definite. It's not a, you have to buy this. Um, it's, like the name says, an option. And so by selling those options to people who might want to buy uh, the underlying stocks, um, like for example, if they think that the price of the underlying S&P 500 stocks is going to go up, then you know the fund managers can make a little extra income. So Jeppy holds the stocks and then it has that, that income generation portion of its portfolio as well. And so since Jeppy is also holding the you know the underlying stocks it's benefiting from both exposures right that that uh, long stock exposure and the income uh, generating options portion too so that's the basics of a cover call strategy um, like I said many different flavors of how to achieve this and you know there are other uh, layers that you can have on on top of that and and maybe you're um, you know, doing something with puts too to have like a downside uh, protection element as well but basically cover calls get an exposure to some underlying index or strategy and so on, and then make a little cash on the side by selling options to traders who want to place bets on the underlying um, stocks. Um, this is a very common strategy in the derivatives market. People do this all the time, but the ETF makes it easier you know, for, for investors to do it yourself if you, know, you're, you don't want to play in the options market or you're kind of intimidated by it. Um, it's also kind of cheaper too, so. All right, so let me ask you this, and uh, j just a few minutes left here, so we don't have to go into great detail, but what are your thoughts on these uh, recent copycat filings? And you can talk about Goldman, RecShares. I know there are some other ones out there, including single stock ETFs where they're writing uh, cover calls. But <laughs> do, do you think these can find success, or are they late to the party here? I, you know, I've, I, I've been a little surprised at how bottomless the appetite seems to be for cover call ETFs, or at least uh, the interest level, the research level uh, tends to be for these types of products. Um, you certainly see other cover call products uh, kind of getting some traction. So QYLD and DIVO, uh, that's from Amplify and Global X, uh, respectively. Um, these are ETFs with big, long track records. They've been around a long time. They have billions in assets under management, and they're continuing to bring in money over um, the last couple of months and years. Um, what I think is going to matter and what's going to be the determinant as to whether these funds are going to take off or not is whether they give investors exposure to an underlying index that they want exposure to, right? So that's why S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100 ETFs, you know, cover call ETFs have been so popular up to this point. Now, we are seeing some interest and in pickup in those cover call ETFs you mentioned that that cover a single 
uh, stock, like the Tesla one. There's Yield Max has one uh, for Tesla. And our new managing editor, Heather Bell, actually just did a story on this a few days ago, um, pointing out that TSLY has grown to almost 100 million assets since it, it launched just a few weeks or, or months ago. Um, so there's there's definitely interest uh, for a covered call option on Tesla, because Tesla, there's a bottomless appetite for Tesla. Um, so I, I think we're kind of at the beginning of this trend. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if money, how much money moves in and which, um, you know, thing, you know, what, what exposures is going to attract the most attention. One thing I think um, might propel more flows and adoption, ironically, would be kind of a down market, right? Because then folks might tax loss harvest from, you know, their original vanilla exposure in a single strategy or you know, whatever into the cover call ETF version and, and kind of manage that tax, you know, mitigate those tax hits there um, and to get the exposure that has a little bit of income to it. But, um, you know, it's it's tough to say that, like, you do that and, and not just uh, see investors do kind of what they always do in those sorts of markets, which is cut their losses and move on to the next shiny thing and, and so on. So it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the future. I'm definitely keeping my popcorn at the ready. Well, I think the other factor that is uh, going to be a tailwind here, and you, you were touching on this, is now that these strategies have been packaged up into an ETF wrapper, there is just a lot more awareness and yeah. familiarity around these strategies. And, you know, that always helps, right? Just the visibility that investors and advisors may have not realized they can have access to a strategy like this. And I know that sounds a little cliche, but um, that helps. Now, you know, my I think my own personal opinion is maybe these do feel a little late. I, I just, you know, hmm. after seeing the flows into Jeppy and some of these other products, it, it just feels like maybe they're a little late to the party here. But uh, we'll see. And obviously, the market environment will uh, will dictate a lot of that. But Laura, we're gonna have to leave it there. Always love our chat. You're right. Never a dull moment in ETFs. That's why we both love covering <laughs> this space. Thank you for uh, joining me this week. Thank you so much for having me. That was Laura Krigger, editor in chief at Vetify. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Discover Amplify's high quality and high income ETFs designed to provide you monthly income. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. Visit Amplify ETFs to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. is Michael Natell, head of intermediary distribution at Northern Trust Asset Management, who of course offers the FlexShares lineup of ETFs. Currently 32 ETFs, nearly $21 billion in assets. That's led by the FlexShares Morningstar Global Upstream Natural Resources ETF, ticker symbol GUNNER, G-U-N-R, which we will spend a few minutes discussing. Uh, Michael is now on the line with me from Chicago. 
Michael, always a pleasure. Great having you back on the podcast. Nate, always a pleasure as well. Love being here. I think this is my fourth or fifth time with you, and congrats on all the success on this podcast. Well, thank you. And, and look, I mentioned this uh, at the top. I want to start with the current markets more broadly, and then we can certainly drill down into some uh, specific ETFs, because Northern Trust obviously has an extremely deep uh, bench on the investment research side, right? You have a lot of expertise to leverage. And so I thought it might be interesting hearing Northern Trust's base case on both equities and fixed income. I, I just feel like there are a lot of mixed signals out there in the markets right now. And certainly while investors are always confused, it does feel like there's a, a lot more confusion than usual. And so I'm very interested in hearing the uh, current views on, on risk and return. And I, I guess let's just take equities first. Maybe uh, give us the current thinking around stocks, which I will add. You, you look, and I know you're familiar with this, the S&P 500 is up, what, 14% this year. The, uh, the, the tech-heavy NASDAQ 100 is up 36%. So I'll, I'll just toss those into the backdrop as well. So, so what are you seeing here? Yeah, Nate, really good points there. I think, um, you know, at Northern Trust Asset Management, we take a, a very – uh, risk-adjusted return approach to markets. You know, we take care of clients across the world, whether that's ultra-high net worth investors, sovereign wealth funds, or institutions. And the great thing about what Northern Trust does from an approach is we have one view on risk for all of those client bases. And your point is very well taken. The market's up about 14% this year, but equal-weighted indices are up roughly 4%. So obviously, we have a bunch or a few tech names that are really leading uh, the way. And I think that shows that there are some, there's some risk issues out there. And so from an equity perspective, um, you know, we're a little underweight risk right now. And Northern Trust Asset Management takes basically two views on portfolio construction, a strategic view, which is basically a 60-40 portfolio of stocks, bonds, cash, and alternatives. And uh, that's a five-year view when we say strategic. So that's 60 months, six zero. And then we juxtapose that or compare it with a tactical view. And for Northern Trust Asset Management, that's 12 months, not 12 weeks. Uh, so that's a one-year view. And so right now we are underweight all segments of equities across the world. That's emerging markets, developed XUS and US. It's slight, just a few uh, percentage points each. Um, but that's that's pretty significant right now. When you look to where we've come from over the last decade, uh, it's been very rare to be underweight risk right now in the equity, in the equity market. Can you talk a little bit more about the international side of the equation? And it's interesting. I've talked a lot about how ETF inflows have been pretty muted on the U.S. equity side, though, though they have picked up recently. But it's actually been international ETFs that have done the uh, bulk of the heavy lifting on equity ETF inflows this year. I any specific thoughts on international? I mean, it sounds like a cautious approach uh, across the globe, but, but any detail you'd provide on international stocks? Yeah, good point, Nate. Uh, and yes, we have seen flows into international. I think there's a few reasons for that. I think there's been so much headline risk about recessionary pressure um, domestically, but also there's a, a great case that there's probably some better valuations outside the United States in certain places. But we can't uh, ignore the fact that, you know, there are, uh, there are segments of the world that are, you know, starting to succumb to recession, especially if you look in, into Europe and developed markets. I mean, Germany has officially entered into a recession, and there are other European nations that are soon to follow. So I think we've got to be very, very careful. But again, to talk about being underweight to risk, 
at Northern Trust Asset Management, it doesn't mean we're not exposed there. So just to give you an idea, you know, on a, on a five-year viewpoint, um, outside of the United States, we would have a, a 19% exposure to developed and emerging markets. And we just reduced that by 5%. Now that's 14%. So we still think there's opportunities there, but I think we want to be very cautious right now. And, and I know we'll get into this a little bit later, but we're feeding that risk underweight to cash, high-yield bonds, and I know we'll get to that later, and natural resources, as you uh, talked about at the opening of this segment. Well, let me ask you this. If we were to move away from Northern Trust's base case on the equity side, which obviously does sound a bit more cautious, I'm just curious, what's the biggest risk factor in terms of what could go wrong? And, and obviously nobody has a crystal ball, so I'm not talking black swan type stuff, but what's a risk or risk that could maybe alter the thinking around the current equity base case? Yeah, good good question, Nate. I think the, the big, biggest risk, for our view right now is if this, the, the, the bull market continues to run, right? Because we're going to be under underweight risk, and our clients are going to miss out on some of that. So that's, that's one risk for our view. But if we look overall, the biggest risks to what's going on in the environment right now is just that the economic uh, environment is, is just approaching this, what we have called a, a stall speed, right? We've had these these recent uh, regional bank stresses, uh, we've had eight months of restricted, uh, restrictive monetary policy, and that's absolutely going to pressure the growth trajectory of the market and the economy. And if you were to take away names like NVIDIA and Meta and Apple, et cetera, what would this market environment look like? We might be singing a different tune in terms of, of how we would be approaching risk overall. And uh, I think those are the the, probably the biggest risk scenarios to our view and to what's going on right now. You alluded to the fixed income side of the equation. I, I believe you said, you know, moving into to, to cash, high yield bonds. What is the overall thinking on fixed income right now? Yeah, I think we've got to be be careful right now with fixed income. I mean, let's let's look back at at last year when it was probably the most difficult environment that investors and advisors are probably experiencing their in their lifetimes. Right? We had both equity and fixed income sides of the negative, right? Very, very difficult. And so right now, um, on the fixed income side of things, we have preferred credit risk over term risk. But as we see the Fed potentially pausing, or at least getting much closer to pausing in this cycle, we are starting to take a little bit more of a look at at taking some duration risk. And we also feel like the 10-year Treasury is at the the higher end of the range that we expect it to be in, which is three and a quarter to three and three quarter percent. And if those things are true and end up being true, uh, there may be some some opportunities to take some some duration risk as well. But we see a lot of opportunities in credit risk, which I know we'll get to in a moment. But let's you just cannot deny right now the the really short term side of things, especially with treasuries. I, I think every short term treasury under a year is yielding over 5% and closer to five and a quarter. That's pretty lucrative right now, and you can make a case for a barbelling strategy with, with high yield on the fixed income side, and that's where we see some some opportunity as well on the credit side of things. Yeah, let's actually talk a little bit more about that, this uh, preference for some credit risk, because if I play devil's advocate, 
I would say there are clearly concerns out there regarding a slowing economy and a potential recession. Now, I think you could also argue, look, maybe the Fed's going to pull this off. And, you know, they're landing this thing, you know, in a much more smooth fashion than was expected. But let's just say that, you know, we do get a slowing economy and and even a recession. Theoretically, that would not be a positive for credit risk and, and in particular high yield. So where does that confidence come from on that? Yeah, good point. Um, I think from a credit perspective, we don't want you to we don't want investors to think about high yield as a replacement for investment grade bonds or or cash. We look at high yield as a way to hopefully reduce risk in a portfolio. And we want you all we want investors to feed that high yield portion or credit risk from their equities because there is a great risk return profile uh, as you compare equities to high-yield bonds. And so that's why we see such a great opportunity with high-yield. Not only that, uh, our product, which is HYGV, the V is for value, is yielding almost 10% right now. And so in an environment where you're getting, uh, let's call it five and a quarter with short-term treasuries, you're getting three and three quarters with a 10-year, uh, 10-year treasury, getting 10% to wait, even if there is a little bit of a rocky road, that's a pretty good cushion, and, and we think that's very viable. Not only that, in environments like this, high-yield bonds have been very lucrative. If you are strategic with them, this is not a tactical play, but if you are strategic with high-yield bonds in environments like this, looking back at history, it's been a very lucrative um, asset class, and that's why we like it. All right, so you mentioned uh, HYGV. That's the FlexShares High Yield Value Scored U.S. Bond Index ETF. This is a perfect jumping-off point. Let, let's get into a few FlexShares ETF, and I guess let's just start on that one. That has over a mm-hmm. billion dollars in it. Uh, it's one of your more popular ETFs. I guess the question I'll ask you here is how does this compare to some of the other uh, high-yield bond ETFs on the market, something like J&K or HYG? Yeah, good question. I think the, the biggest difference between uh, HYGV and our competitors is first, we're going to be very, um, very well priced. So that's one thing that we're going to be able to help with. But the, when you get into the portfolio, what the V in HYGV stands for is value, and that's the value factor. So the first thing is we're bringing in an innovative approach to high yield investing and fixed income by bringing a factor based approach. And what that means is, is that our credit, we're going to take a little bit more credit risk. If you're going to buy high yield, we want you to buy high yield. And what we've seen in the high yield environment over the years is a move up in credit quality, almost looking like a core plus product from, let's say, the 2010s. And what that means is is that we are going to have more triple C exposure, et cetera. And if we looked at it like a weighted average credit score, we're going to have a little lower uh, credit rating than a J&K or an HYG, which means we're going to yield more. Um, and we might have a little more uh, price movement and volatility, but the key to high-yield bonds is that 100%, over 100% of your total return comes from the yield over time. So especially if you hold for three and five years, if you're waiting for price movement, that one's going to be tough to, to measure. Yield is the portion that you want to be in. But what you don't want to do is fall into these yield traps and just buy the, the largest yielding positions. And so what HYGV does is has control mechanisms 
to avoid some of those issues. Last year, we didn't have a default in the portfolio, which is exceptional. Can't uh, guarantee that would happen every year. But what we are going to do, just to give an example, is we're going to eliminate the the lowest 10% of illiquid positions, which is where the majority of defaults lie. So we're going to fish in a a pond of that 90%, and that allows us to to build a portfolio that's going to have a very high value and ultimately, hopefully, high returns for our investors. Michael, if we go back to the equity side of the equation, and, and by the way, I liked your point regarding high-yield bonds, you know, perhaps coming out of the equity sleeve in a portfolio. I, I think that's an excellent point and one that investors should spend some time looking at and evaluating. But um, if we look on the on the pure equity side, let's say investors agree with Northern Trust's uh, overall cautious approach right now. What would be an ETF or two that you would highlight for consideration uh, on that equity side? Yeah, good question. I think the hard part right now is, well, I'm, I'm, if I'm an investor that is concerned with risk, you know, Michael, you laid out a plan that, you know, the economy is going to start to stall. You know, why would I, why would I be in equities? And the issue with that is what if we're wrong, right? And what if the market continues to do what it has done? And so we have a quality, low volatility uh, uh, portfolio. The ticker's easy. It's Q for quality, LV for low volatility. And the reason to look at low volatility stocks in an environment like this um, is because of the de-risking opportunity that it presents. The problem with low volatility stocks and a single factor view is that they typically don't participate in the upside when markets snap back, right? And so we've all talked about market timing and how hard it is to do that. But yet if we are going to say, well, we want investors to downshift into low volatility, well, when do they upshift back into market-weighted portfolios, for example? That's a hard decision to make because you got to get it right twice. But so what we have done is combine a quality and low volatility portfolio, which means you're going to get that upside participation that low volatility stocks alone don't provide. So QLV in an environment like this has an excellent upside-downside capture ratio. So here's, here's the numbers. Against the Russell 1000, QLV is going to provide you 87% of the upside. So not full participation, but it's only going to capture 74% of the downside. And so that's the reason that you should be looking at um, low volatility, especially combined with quality, and QLV can help you to do that. Yeah, and again, QLV, that's the FlexShares U.S. Quality Low Volatility Index ETF. And, Michael, as you were uh, talking there, I just pulled up the performance on this. So I show QLV is up uh, 4% year-to-date versus the 14% on the S&P 500. Now, obviously, uh, we, we know growth has been dominating, right, primarily mega cap growth, which you, you mentioned at the top. So – I don't think this performance is necessarily a surprise based on what we've seen this year. But any thoughts on why we've seen what we've seen and, and why Loval has been uh, challenged? Yeah, I think it's, it's fair. On paper, it does look like it's challenged. It's lagging the overall market, market-weighted indices by about 10%. But that's the key. Uh, QLD, as compared to an equal-weighted indice, uh, is outperforming by about 45 basis points. Hmm. That's the key here is that, you know, we talked about this at the opening, and I'm sure, you know, you'll talk about this with other guests, Nate, is that this market has become very, very bifurcated with basically eight to ten names leading the market. And if you're not in those names, you've really lagged. But if we compare it to an equal-weighted portfolio, let's say like an RSP, for example, Q 
QLV is outperforming it and doing exactly what it should do in an environment like this. And that's why we're so high on a Q and LV type factor uh, com- uh, combination. All right, just a couple of minutes left here before I let you go. We do have to talk Gunner, the FlexShares Morningstar Global Upstream Natural Resources Index ETF. This is currently your most popular ETF, and I, I feel like we touch on this just about every time you join me. But look, <laughs> this has over seven billion in assets, so I kind of feel like we have to um, just give us the, uh, the the basics on this ETF and perhaps how Northern Trust does view natural resources uh, right now. Yeah, natural resources is uh, another one of our overweights, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we see it as a great way to diversify a portfolio. But there's two other things that I would mention natural resources for, and I think this it's, it's exceptional for the environment we're in. But we see it as a strategic hold. Remember, that's a, that's a five-year view. But the other two things that I would look at for natural resources is, number one, it's an excellent way to hedge against inflation, specifically over the intermediate term. And at Northern Trust Asset Management, we look at inflationary hedging on three uh, timelines. Short term, call it zero to 10 years. That would be like where tips could probably help the most. And long term, 20 plus years, that's where your equities come in to help against inflationary protection. But in the intermediate term, like 10 to 20 years, that's where natural resources or infrastructure type equities can help. And so that's another reason. But the final reason is, is that uh, the product that you mentioned, Gunner, G-U-N-R, it's yielding almost 4% right now. So that's more than the 10-year Treasury. So you're going to derive income from a non-traditional income-producing segment of your portfolio, and that's always a good thing. And so it, Gunner, as you mentioned, is, is the flagship product at FlexShares, over $7 billion, yielding four, uh, 4% and, and just 46 basis points uh, for the expense ratio. It's been a very slow and steady, excellent product over time, and and I think that's why uh, our investors have continued to use it um, over um, almost its 12-year history. Well, Michael, excellent perspective as always. I, I just love when we can meld an ETF issuer's investment thinking with some actionable ideas on the uh, ETF side. Very interesting stuff. Thank you for joining me this week. Nate, thanks for having us. Always a pleasure. That was Michael Natell head of Intermediary Distribution at Northern Trust Asset Management. At iShares, we believe that deep down inside of every investor is a better investor, one that's just waiting to be let out. Explore iShares ETFs and insights. Visit iShares.com for more information. Guest this week, certainly not least, is Sal Gilberti, founder of Tucrium, who currently offers nine ETFs, nearly $400 million in assets. Their focus is on futures-based commodity ETFs. So think agriculture, uh, base metals. They're even involved with a Bitcoin futures ETF. And Sal is now on the line with me from Connecticut. Sal, welcome back to the uh, podcast. Nate, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. All right, so look, a lot that we can discuss, but I guess let's start with your most recent launch, which was in April. So the Tucrium AILA Long Short Base Metal Strategy ETF, ticker symbol OI, I'm sorry, OAIB. And I thought this was particularly timely because of all of the recent buzz around 
artificial intelligence, right? This ETF does leverage AI. So do you want to start by taking us through this? Sure. Um, you know, AI is is here, as everyone knows. It's been in the headlines. And the, the purpose of, of artificial intelligence is obviously to create computers and machines that um, think like humans, but smarter, faster, better. And so if you create a machine that can learn from experience, that that is what we call um, artificial intelligence. And so when you program these things to recognize patterns and then um, teach them to make decisions based on the patterns that they see, um, they learn. And so, you know, when you if I had a, a, a training room filled with, say, 100 of the world's greatest metal traders, um, they could all see the data. OK, they can all make their own decision and one can be good in copper, one can be good in, in aluminum, whatever, whatever the metal may be, whatever the specialty may be. There's no chance that I can get all those people to analyze the data, process it, make decisions and implement those decisions in near instantaneous fashion, but a machine can. And so we were introduced to um, ILA indexes, ILA indices. They're out of Singapore. We did a lot of due diligence on them and realized their indexes are just astounding. And what, what they are are a bunch of data scientists and commodity market veterans, literally, who um, basically have come up with a quantitative strategy looks at thousands of different data points in whatever market we're focused on. And OAIB, it happens to be uh, metals, base metals. That's why the B is in there. Um, and the strategy has been active and it's been learning, we'll say, since it is artificial intelligence since 2017. So when we look at it, and they're just an index, okay? So when you, when we look at that index, um, and, and see its performance. So the indexes have a performance because they've been being published live since uh, 2017. So when I when I look at the the ILA B index, um, it's got an annualized return 2018 through 2022 of over 15 percent, with a, a sharp ratio of just under two percent, 1.86 percent. So when I, I look at returns like that, I say, well, how do I how do I capture that? And all we had to do was license the index, package it in an ETF, because these products are only available to hedge funds and banks who then repackage them and put them to institutional customers. So we said, well, why not, why not make it available to everyone? So it's a hedge fund type product with hedge fund type returns. And I mean, top of the line hedge fund managers, the kind that people line up to, to get in and, and have to wait in line to, to put their money with. We've got the track record. And again, past performance is not indicative of future results, even for, for an artificial intelligence machine. But these things are so good, we, we package them. We passively track the index. That's all we do um, because we don't want to change anything. It's, it's a recipe that seems to be working. So, Sal, just for the layman, though, what's going on underneath the hood here? Are you basically taking the, these these trading signals and then going long or short, various base metals? I mean, is that's it that correct. simple? These are, okay. Yes, these are long-short funds. They can hopefully make money and in, in, in achieve a return that we want in up, down, or sideways markets. So they're analyzing data, and it's literally thousands of different data points from from the fundamentals of the market to government reports to um, tweets and headlines, um, and it, it sees patterns. So I guess the best way I could say it is if you if you look at a thousand data points, and you would need hundreds of traders to do this, look at a thousand different data points, analyze them, and say the last time these thousand data points lined up in this way this is what happened to the market. It either went up or down or nothing. And so the machine is either going to buy or sell or go flat into cash based upon that pattern. 
And if the pattern, you know, works out, repeats, you, you're going to make money inside the, the fund because that's what the index will do. And if the pattern doesn't, you're going to lose money, but the machine will learn and hopefully not repeat that mistake the next time those things line up in approximately the same way. And it's, it's the, the universe of data and information that these things are looking at is so large. Humans simply can't do it in a timely way, and a machine can, and that, that's where the artificial intelligence component comes you have another ETF that leverages AI as well. That's the Tucram AILA, or ILA, as you said, Long Short Agriculture Strategy ETF. So the ticker symbol on that is OAIA. That launched at the end of last year. I'm assuming that's essentially the, the exact same strategy. You're leveraging the same thing uh, under the hood. This just covers agricultural futures instead of base metals. Is that correct? That's correct, and, and we're the you know we we're known for ags with our with our other funds, and so we started with with um, the agricultural index, which happens to be um, also tremendous. That has uh, 2018 through 2020 returns. This is the index again of of over 16 percent and and a sharp ratio of of a hair under two 1.9 percent. Um, since we launched it in December, and here's here's the thing: even artificial intelligence it mimics humans, and so it makes mistakes too. So since we launched it in December, um, it, it hasn't had a winning month. And we could say it's a slump. Some people say buy the dip, you know, wh- whatever. But it's learning, hopefully, from, from what it sees. And, and we believe the anomalies are caused because this thing is, is, you know, about seven years old. And we've seen some activity we can highlight, particularly in the wheat market with the war in the Black Sea and, and in sugar markets being imbalanced for the first time in, in 11 years. Um, the machine hasn't seen these things yet. Now, I don't, I don't know. I'm not privy to what, how far back the data goes. Um, but in terms of real time trading and learning, it's been doing it. Um, it's, it's a great example. And in fact, we, we have advisors who, who called us and said, you know, um, I want to diversify my investments. I know I need commodities. I want to go into some alpha products. I just don't just want long only exposure and, um, if I want to be in commodities, I can diversify my risk even between commodities. So we have people, you know, calling us up and saying, I'm going to, I have a chunk of money I want to put into a, a long short alpha commodity product. I want to achieve returns over time and I don't know which one to pick. So I'm going to split. I'm going to split. I'm going to have some in my base metal and some in, in my ags. And everybody knows they're important and it's a great time for base metals. Base metals obviously are in the headlines and, and it's really fun and interesting. And ags are always fun and interesting to us. We've been in it. Um, our corn fund was 13 years old um, three days ago. So, you know, we've been in it a long time, and, and ags, are, ags are everything to us. But we are diversifying, and base metals are the, the you know, the next thing. Yeah, and I want to pick up on, on that last point you made regarding base metals, and we can certainly talk ag as well. But when you look at both of these ETFs, obviously the goal is to generate uh, positive returns regardless of the underlying market environment. Again, these are long, short and as you noted, you're leveraging machine learning. Theoretically, there's continual uh, learning process there. But if we put all of that aside, can you just paint the basic investment case for both base metals and agricultural commodities? Because uh, I, I, I'm assuming you want to take those separately, but I, I'd love to just hear the high-level investment thesis for each of those. Sure. But I think you can group them together and say, well, I mean, our line has always been – um, the last thing people will do is let themselves, their family, or their, or their animals go cold or hungry. So, you know, everybody you say, do you have a commodity exposure in your portfolio? Most people say, yeah, gold, well, that's a store of value. And then they say energy because they understand how important energy is to their daily life. 
But we, you know, over the last 13 years since we launched the corn fund, we, we've been telling people how important you can't live without food. Eggs are, are everything. So if you, if you're going to have that in, in important things in your portfolio, you, you probably want to consider eggs too. And of course, you know, the attention and the headlines now are base metals. You, you can't have, um, anything. You can't have any possession that, that doesn't require base metals. Your, your home is loaded with copper wire. Your phone has, has tons of base metals and your car has tons of base metals in it. Base, base metals make the world run and energy, um, powers the world to extract those base metals and convert them into things that we, we, we use. So you've got energy and base metals. It's really important. You, 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 you know, I'm a commodities guy, so I get all excited about it, but ags, Energy, metals, the world doesn't exist without these things in terms of, of modern human um, culture, modern human society. You know, unless we want to live in tents with animal skins and use rock tools, all the things I just mentioned are really important. And to have them in your portfolio probably makes a lot of sense. Hey, I'll note, I love your passion around the commodity space. That's why you, uh, you do what you do. Um, Sal, besides the two AI-related ETFs, Tucrium does offer ETFs, and, and you've alluded to this, covering wheat, corn, sugar, and soybeans. And then you also have two other agricultural strategy ETFs. And then, of course, that Bitcoin futures ETF I mentioned, uh, ticker DeFi. I'll just open this up to you. We obviously don't have time to go through all of these, but is there an ETF or two you would highlight right now? Well, I think no question the ones you started with, uh, OAIA and OAIB, because they, you know, the markets are uncertain now and there's a, the world is uncertain and you want to be able to make money whether markets are going up, down or sideways. And I just think that something with it, with the indexes have such a track record that us packaging them and putting them to ETF, that, you know, that, that'll give investors that choice to, to um, make an investment there and see, see what happens for consistent, hopefully, uh, performance over time, regardless of the, of the markets in the uncertain world, that's really important. But I would also say that, you know, um, DeFi, the Bitcoin fund, that's, that, that's Bitcoin's in the news all the time. So if you've got an opinion on it, there, there's a fund for you. And, um, ads are really important. We haven't talked about the golden grain cycle. Um, but people can, can Google that. It'll come right up on a two grim website and it's worth the, the three or four minute read that explains um, the basics of trading ags and how there are really long-term repeating patterns in ags that investors can take advantage of if they're, if they're paying attention. And so I, I would, I would, you know, I would highlight, <laughs> take your pick. It depends on what somebody's interested in, but I, I think the, the long short alpha that makes money in any, in, in any situation is really important to investors now for diversification. I think that our TIL and TAGS funds, those are the tickers, T-I-L-L and T-A-G-S, they both own corn, soybeans, sugar, and wheat in equal amounts. And those, you know, if you catch the golden grain cycle right, that's a that's a layered holding in a portfolio that can go in there to diversify. So um, it's hard to say. We really are selective about the funds we launch and take on as our white label. So, but, you know, I think they're all good. I'm sure I said this last time you were on, but I have to mention that you have some of the best ticker symbols out there. When you think about wheat, W-E-A-T, corn, uh, till, T-I-L-L, cane, obviously DeFi, that's a uh, a pretty good ticker symbol game overall. Um, 
Sal, just a couple of minutes left here. You started heading down the path towards portfolio application. And when I look at the two AI-related funds, I can certainly see how you could hold those as part of a uh, you know, longer-term buy-and-hold portfolio, right, because these are long-short uh, long strategies. But if you look at the individual commodity ETFs, for instance, you just mentioned the repeating pattern with the, uh, the golden grain cycle. I'm just curious, how do you think investors and advisors should look at those types of ETFs, you know, individual agriculture ETFs or even individual base metals ETFs. Should they think about these as tactical investments? Are they strategic? Does it depend? Just what are some, uh, you know, some rules of thumb there? Well, I think it depends. I think there's no question they can be tactical as, as we proved when, you know, when the invasion came and they can be tactical when you're in the golden grain cycle. So, you know, in, in 10 seconds time, grains are subsidized around the world by government because they want everyone to be able to eat. So a grain's normal, um, price action is trading flatline around their cost of production. So when you see corn, for example, trading flatline around, around 350 or $4 a bushel, and it stays there for a year or two or three or four, it's only a matter of time, at least history has shown that, before there's a supply disruption because demand is constant. So the you know golden grain cycle, cycle one, is you're just flatline. You're trading sideways. That's when you layer it in your portfolio. You just put a weighting. This is what people tell us they do, and they're very happy when they do it. They put a weighting and they wait. So it's weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, weight, W-A-I-T. And there's a drought or a war or some supply disruption. Demand is steady because everybody eats their bagel, whether it rains or not, in, in, you know, in Kansas. And so you, the demand causes the price to rise. So the price goes up pretty quickly on these things when there's a supply disruption. That's stage two. And then as farmers respond, because all commodities producers produce when prices go up, they do their job really well, then prices go down. They're in stage three. And that's what we've been in now, Grain. So I think um, strategically on a long term, when you're in stage one of the golden grain cycle, when things are flatlined, that's when you layer it into a portfolio for a buy and hold, wait, wait. And, you know, if you're tactical, you're waiting for an event. It, and so right now we're, we're in the middle of June here. Um, in, in three weeks' time, we will know if it's going to rain and be a good temperature during the first three or four weeks, three weeks of June, of July for corn pollination in North America. If the weather's good, corn prices are going to go sideways or down. If it doesn't rain, and it's been pretty dry, but it's too early to tell. But if it doesn't rain the next three weeks in the Midwest, you could have a supply disruption in grains that would be significant. And people are going to be tactically wanting to get into, you know, corn and soybeans. Well, so they're both. Their long-term allocation, and you can use tags or till for those um, to, to get an exposure, broad exposure to grains. Or their short-term tactical, there's an event, a supply disruption, a, a drought or a war. You get into those things. Or there's, you know, buy and hold for long-term returns based upon a long-term index performance. Those are our, our you know, our artificial intelligence funds, OAIB and OAIA. Being here in Kansas City, I can vouch firsthand. It's been extremely dry. Uh, I, I don't think it, it had rained at all up until uh, last week, so we'll see what happens there. But, Sal, always great connecting. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation this week. Thank you for joining me. Nate, thank you for having me. Be well. That was Sal Gilberti, founder of Tucrium. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Motley Fool Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Motley Fool Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Next week, I'll be joined by Charles Schwab's DJ Tierney. So we're going to talk ETFs and direct indexing. And then T. Rowe Price's Tim Coyne 
We'll spotlight several of their ETFs, including the T. Rowe Price Blue Chip Growth ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Thank you.